Well, good morning. It is an absolutely stunning day in the South, and we're so glad that you have chosen to join us to set aside this hour for a sacred purpose for us to gather around God's Word and to sit at the Lord's table. We are walking through a series here at Peachtree that's called Soft Heart for a Hard World. And as we do this, we've been journeying through the book of Exodus. We've been discovering how God has a soft heart for us and that he wants us to reflect that in the world. He wants us to be wise and generous and kind and patient and gentle. And as God reflects this in our lives and as we share it with others, we've been going through the ups and the downs of this Exodus Israelite journey, and we come to a difficult chapter in the life of God's people today before we go and join God's people at the table. And so as we're going to do this today, I want to begin with a question to see if you answer this with somebody next to you. This is not a political question. This is not a sociological question. There's a reason I'm asking this question. What is the one thing that you really appreciate about living in the United States? Turn to somebody and answer that question. Ready, set, go. I imagine there's a variety of answers in this sanctuary and anybody who's listening to this message, but there's probably some commonalities. I mean, some of you might be grateful for the liberty, for the freedom that you enjoy. Others of you might be grateful for the opportunity of what it means to live in America. Others of you might be grateful for the plenty, for the abundance of what we have when we get to live here. And others of you might be grateful for equality or maybe the civil rights that we enjoy. Depending on who you are, depending on your particular history and your family story, you'll probably have a slightly different answer to that question. But I imagine that if we compiled them together, you could put together basically a values list, a kind of a set of things that America has stood for. And you know, you know these things are important to you because when somebody tries to take them away, it rubs against what you think ought to be true for this great land of ours. Did you know that America has been going on for a long time, that you're swimming in a stream of something that's called the American experiment? It's been happening for about 400 years, that in 1620, excuse me, the Mayflower landed on the shores of this country. And so you can imagine that many of the things that you have labeled that are things that you're grateful for are the kinds of things that have been growing and taking place over long periods of time and even centuries that these things were not forged overnight, that your imagination has been saturated by these kinds of things. And the reason that I have us begin here is that there's a kind of a common mistake when you read the Exodus story that because God condenses it in even just a few pages in the Bible, you have this notion of like, okay, Joseph, because of the famine, they brought, you know, God's people to Exodus, to the Egypt story, and they're there, and they're living in plenty, and then all of a sudden there's a new political regime change, and things turn bad, but then God quickly sends Moses, and things get rectified fairly quickly, but that is not how the story goes. Did you realize that according to the Bible that God's people were in Egypt for 430 years? 
So basically, the same amount of time that the American experiment has been taking place, God's people were in captivity in Egypt, and they too were submerged. They were saturated with the values of what it meant to live there. All those Egyptian gods, all the different ways of living under oppression. You can imagine that over four centuries that their conscience was shaped by what it meant to live there. And the reason that that's significant is that before we get to something that you're more familiar with, the Ten Commandments, with Moses looking strikingly like this handsome Charlton Heston here, there's another top ten, and that is the Ten Plagues. And with these 10 plagues, it might be said that you're doing something very different in order to kind of set the stage, in order to get ready for the 10 commandments. If the 10 commandments are about how are we supposed to live in the gratitude of God's abundant freedom and love, the 10 commandments are like a a kind of an exorcism of our false imagination of what it means to live in Egypt. The way that Eugene Peterson describes it is he says the 10 plagues are are kind of like a 10-round boxing match that shows who is really in charge. He puts it this way. He's like, blood, pow, frogs, pow, mosquitoes, pow, flies, pow, pestilence, pow, boils, pow, hail, pow, which in the South sometimes means H-E-L-L, but that's H-A-I-L. Locust, pal, darkness, pal, death, pal. Each blow further loosened the hold of that immense world-dominating Egyptian lie on the people until there was nothing left but a pile of rubble, garbage, and corpses. And it is out of those ashes that God begins to reform the identity of his people. In fact, a lot of us have a kind of a false notion of, you know, what the 10 plagues are for. You kind of see them as 10 judgments. And it's interesting, the word judge only appears once. It'll appear later in the passage that we're going to read today. And the word for judgment is in reference to judging the false Egyptian gods. It's never about judging Pharaoh. It's never about judging the Egyptians. It's about judging those other gods. But the word that does repeat over and over again in this part of Exodus is the verb to know. In other words, these things happen so that they may know who really is God and who is not, who is in charge and who is not. Think of this as a massive education reorientation that's happening to God's people. And so today, we're going to look at the 10th of the plagues. It's the one that we're familiar with, but we don't really know it. Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. In other words, what's about to happen is about to recalibrate the entire calendar. Everything is going to start with this moment. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. 
take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and to put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Anybody hungry and ready for lunch? (laughs) Do not leave it until morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you were to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, and sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast, and on the first day remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Anybody got any questions or do you feel like you understand exactly what's going on here? When I was back in graduate school, one of the ways that I helped to pay the bills was I taught tennis. I taught it at the Princeton Tennis Program while I was up there, and I taught little kids all the way through adults. I liked teaching the adults better because private lessons paid better and they tipped better. But in teaching at the Princeton Tennis Program, I was kind of with an interesting cadre of other people who were teaching as well and coaching. And there was this woman who was in her mid-40s who had grown up as a young kid Jewish and then for several decades had walked away from her faith. And she really didn't know any other religious people. It didn't matter that I was a Christian and training to be a pastor. I mean, she considered me to be one of the few religious people that she knew. And something was rekindling within her, wanting her to reconnect to God and to her Christian faith or to her Jewish faith. And so she started asking a lot of questions and she said, you know what, it's coming up soon. I'm just going to throw a Passover meal. I'm going to do that. And this is before the days of like the internet where you could like find some YouTube videos on how to do a Passover meal. She probably checked a book out of the library. And so she started, you know, working on it. She really didn't know any other Jews. And so she invited all of her Gentile friends to come and to sit at her Passover meal. And uh, as she was getting all the preparations done, Kelly and I were out of town. We couldn't be there. And so she held the Passover. And then when the Passover was over, she came running up to me. She's like, Rich, 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 you're not going to believe what happened at our Seder. 
And I'm like, what happened at your Seder? And she said, well, we were sitting there at the table. We're getting ready. I had followed all the instructions with all the different food prep. And it was a lot of work, she said. And then and we set aside that chair that is the custom, that one table setting for Elijah, just in case he decides to show up. And we get to write that part. And kind of what we're doing is we're gathered around the table. And then all of a sudden, there's this knock at the door. I'm like, there was a knock at the door? She says, yeah, there was a knock at the door. I open it up, and it's the Mormons. There were two Mormons sitting there, and I told them, you're here because you're Elijah. And if for the first time in history, Mormons started backing up away from the door. No, ma'am, I'm Frank. I'm not Elijah. No, she's like, you're Elijah, and you're going to come to my Passover meal. They would not come in to her Passover meal because they knew that this woman was a little crazy. You know, she said, it was so great to do that. It was great to start to reconnect with you know, my understanding of who God is. But I got to tell you, Rich, there's so much I don't know. A lot of it was just going through the motions. I have so much to learn. And I'll bet she's not the only one that has a lot to learn as we gather around tables like this one. So today I want to give you a basic crash course in kind of the three dimensions of Passover and how do they pertain to the new Passover that we're about to celebrate at this table? I want to talk about bitter herbs and unleavened bread and the blood of the lamb. Let's talk about them one at a time. First, let's talk about the bitter herbs. In order to talk about this, I want to take you on a vacation that we were on last year. And when we were out of town, it was our oldest daughter, Danica's birthday. So we went out to eat. And while we were out to eat, while we were there, um, we were going to celebrate Danica's birthday. And the one thing that she desperately did not want them to do was that they were going to sing to her, which they did. And our server was this woman that I want to introduce you up on the screen here. She's in the white jacket here, and her name is Nandu. And Nandu was from South Africa. And over the course of the time together, we started to get to know her. And I mean, I'm kind of an extrovert and I'm a pastor. I ask a lot of questions. And we started to strike up this conversation and to learn more and more about her. But she had this infectious, joyous smile and laugh. It was just so contagious. When I asked about her history and what it was like to grow up under apartheid in South Africa, her, her countenance changed. And she described what it was like. And I said, was there something that's changed for you that you still do as a result of your upbringing? And she said, there is something I do. It's every single day. She goes, every single day I sit down and I pour myself a cup of tea, hot tea, and I pour it in a very nice piece of porcelain. I'm like, why do you do that? And she said, my mother loved tea and she loved for tea to be done right. But in my home country, she said growing up, my mother was not allowed to go into a china shop. She was not allowed to go in and to buy porcelain. And so she said every single day, I drink a cup of tea out of that porcelain and I remember, I remember what it was like to not be free. The Israelites are told at the Passover meal that they are to eat bitter herbs 
They are to eat bitter herbs to remember the bitterness of what it was like to not be free. They needed that tangible, physical reminder of the pain of the enslavement of what they endured to never forget and never take for granted the freedom that God gives to them. And so at the table, there's bitter herbs, but there's also unleavened bread. And you might be asking yourself, why such an emphasis on yeast and the fact that it's unleavened bread? Let me see if I can explain. When my grandfather was a young boy, his house and his farm in East Germany became the front in World War I. And with only what they could put on their backs, walking on foot, my family began to flee towards the east, towards Russia. And in order to get there, they had to get on trains. And in getting on trains, because of the war going on, you never knew if the train was going to go for a long distance or a shorter distance. My grandfather reported that at times the train would stop for an entire month. And you never knew. You never knew when that train was going to leave. And so he said, in order to survive, we had to hunt in the woods. We had to scavenge. We had to, if we were close to a town, try to barter in order to be able to survive. But no matter how far away we got from the train, we were always listening. We always had one ear. We were always at a ready. He described this one time when he had to run at a breakneck speed in order to catch up in order to grab a hold of the train to jump on board. He said, we always had to be ready because you never knew when it was going to go. Did you notice all of the instructions about what that was like at the Passover meal, that you're to eat this meal with your tunic tucked in, with your staff in one hand, with your sandals on your feet? Did you, you know you weren't supposed to eat with your shoes on in the ancient world, that that was kind of considered rude. But this meal was a reminder. It's a reminder not only of the bitterness of their time together, it's a reminder of that unleavened bread and of being ready to go in a minute's notice. The bread is unleavened because it doesn't have time to rise. And so you take the yeast out of your house to remember by eating that unleavened bread that you're always to be ready. That God does not want you to forget the bitterness of the past, but also he also doesn't want you to forget and become complacent to become settled in in slavery. No, he wants you to remain vigilant, ready for what God is going to do next. And so there's bitter herbs, there's unleavened bread at the Passover meal, and there's the blood of the lamb. I want to show you a picture of a four-year-old girl named Cecilia. This is a picture of her at the hospital after she sustained some significant injuries. She was four years old. It was 1987, August the 16th. She was a passenger along with a lot of others for flight 225, Northwest Airlines. It was a flight that was taking off from Detroit when things went badly and the plane crashed. There was only one survivor and it was she. 
In fact, the media at first didn't believe that she had survived the plane crash because everybody else had died. There's no way anybody else could have survived, but they checked the passenger manifest, and yes, she had gotten aboard. And the question was, how did she survive? She survived, they discovered later, in this way, that when the plane was starting to careen out of control, that through the investigation they discovered that her mother unbuckled her own seatbelt and she got down on her knees in the row before her daughter. And with her own body, she wrapped herself around her child. And as the plane crashed, she used her own body as a shield. She spilled her own blood that her child may survive. You might say that she lived because she was covered in the blood of a substitute, of another. Later, as a teenager, she looked more like this. And in the interview, you can see a little mark on her arm of the silhouette of the airplane reminding her that she was the sole survivor and the cost of the one who paid a deep price for her to live. She was covered in the blood. There's a part of this that's difficult for us to relate to because there's a little part of us that when we read the Passover story, when we know that this God that passes over some but not others, is it really God just choosing sides and one ethnicity versus another, one tribe versus another? If you have that kind of internal radar that says that that ought not to be the way that it is, Now, if you pay attention to the text, you'll understand what's really going on. It's not about one group of people versus another. Because even the Israelites welcomed at the Passover anybody who was willing to follow Yahweh, to put their trust in Him. Didn't matter what your family of origin was or where you grew up who you were born to. And in fact, if you pay attention to the details of the story in Exodus 12, right after what we just read, it says this, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the house, of the door of your house, until morning. For which Tim Keller says this. What does that mean? Don't go out from under the blood of the Lamb. Why not? Don't you see, God is not coming down to judge the Egyptians. He's coming down to judge sin. The hardness of Pharaoh's heart is not the cause of his judgment. It's only the occasion. Even the Israelites had to stay under the blood of the Lamb. There was nothing inherent in them or their ethnicity that made them better or more special than anyone else. 
It was the fact that God offered a sacrifice. He offered a costly price so that people might live. That the people who committed genocide were not going to have the last words. That the graciousness of God was greater than the deepest of human cruelty. So what does this meal mean for us? This meal for us means that we too, like God's people, need to remain, to stay under the blood of the Lamb so that Passover might not just be something that happened a long time ago, but that Passover might happen in the here and the now. Jesus came to usher in a new Passover. And so John the Baptist, in the beginning of the Gospel of John, said this of Jesus, Behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the blood of the Lamb. In it, he redeems the bitterness. In it, we remain ready for what God is doing anew in the world today but stay under the blood, stay under the blood. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for welcoming us to this, your table, that anyone is welcome at it, that all we need is to trust and have confidence in you. Thank you for being our substitute, for wrapping your eternal arms around even us, Lord, as we take communion today, will you meet us at this table? Remind us of what life is like without forgiveness, without grace. Help us to never take it for granted. Help us to never be complacent. Teach us to be ready to listen for the call of your siren of God's goodness in the world. And teach us to be grateful. And as the book of Exodus says, to know that we may know. Thank you that your judgment is not against us, but against sin. And we pray all of these things with great anticipation in the strong name of Jesus and all of God's people said. On the night that our Savior was betrayed, he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and said, this is my body which is torn for you. Do this. Remember me. And in the same manner, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise sealed in my blood, poured out for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. And whenever you drink of this, you do so. And you remember me. For as often as you eat this bread or you drink this cup, you proclaim the dying and the rising of the Lord until he comes again in power and in glory. Dear friends, we will take communion from a variety of stations around the sanctuary to today, and there will be ushers who will help you to know when it's your time to go, as well as in what direction to go. When you get to the stations, you may take a piece of bread and, and your own personal timing and devotional, symbolizing your own individual relationship with God, eat of the bread. But when you get of the cup, hold on to the cup and 
hang on to it, and we will take the cup together, symbolizing the unity that we have in the midst of our communion, our community in Christ. Dear friends, these are the gifts of God. They are for you, the people of God. Will the servers come? The new Passover is ready.